We're taking our third look at the relationship of the law and the gospel. In particular, we've been looking at the relationship of the law to the new covenant believer. But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in freedom to learn more about who you are. We thank you for your gracious gift of salvation that came through the blood of your Son. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us think well in the biblical text today so that we would understand the relationship of the Mosaic Law to the New Covenant believer. We ask, Heavenly Father, that we would not be severed from Christ all the days that we live, that we would persevere in Him through the system that You've laid out for us in the Spirit. And so we pray that You would help us to understand sanctification in a better way through Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to welcome everybody. Um, Again, we're talking about today specifically the relationship between the Mosaic Law and the New Covenant Believer. And I want to remind you where we had left off last time. Recall that we had looked at three different questions. The first question was, what was the purpose of the Mosaic Law? And we had concluded that the primary purpose behind the Mosaic Law was to increase sin according to passages like Romans 5.20. And so what the law did then was it ensured that we would see our need for a Savior. Okay, that was the major purpose behind the law. The second question that we answered was, we looked at the question concerning Calvin's use of the law, in particular his third use of the law. And what Calvin meant by the third use of the law was that the law could incite the regenerate to obedience and to do that which is pleasing to God. We had concluded that that's not true. We had concluded from Romans chapter 7 that no matter if you're regenerate or unregenerate, If you go back to the law, it's not going to aid you in doing that which is pleasing to God. Now, the third question that we had introduced last time was, what role, if any, does the Mosaic Law play in a Christian's life? And what we concluded is the Mosaic Law is part of Scripture. It's in our Old Testament, and we don't have a canon within a canon. We have one canon from Genesis to Revelation. And so we concluded that as a binding regulatory document, the Mosaic law is no longer binding. We gave an example, Leviticus 13. It excludes people with a serious skin condition from the assembly with God. Is that binding on us today? No. But we can read that and understand it as scripture in light of all of God's revelation to say, yes, this God is so holy that human beings who are fallen sinners, oftentimes even through no fault of their own, can't be in his presence. We're incompatible because we're not clean. And therefore, we need a Savior who will make us eternally clean. That preaches, doesn't it? And we can learn that from Leviticus 13. So what we concluded was that as Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all Scripture. But the Mosaic Law is no longer binding on us, or it's no longer a regulatory... It doesn't have a regulatory function, perhaps put it that way. Yes, Mike. Okay, having said that, yeah. there are, a question, I guess, uh, are there not moral principles that are binding on us, you know, eternally? There are, there are principles, I don't, maybe binding eternally is not the right way to say it, but there are moral principles in 
the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law that we can apply. And we, they are applied even in the New Testament as we have through the Law of Christ. Exactly, exactly. Well said. In fact, perfect segue. This is uh, the, the check's in the mail, by the way. That's what we have to look at today is we have to look at there is continuity. <laughs> there is continuity between the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the New Covenant. So, for instance, it was always wrong to murder. When Cain murdered Abel, he did that prior to the Mosaic Law, and he was sinning against God. If we murdered under the Mosaic Covenant, we were sinning against God. If we murder in the New Covenant, we're sinning against God. Here's what we're going to see, though, and this is important for all of us to think about. In the Reformed tradition, many theologians will say it's only the Mosaic Covenant is completely intact unless it's specifically abrogated and changed by the New Covenant. I would change that. I would say that the whole Mosaic Covenant is terminated and fulfilled in Christ, and it's only what the New Covenant then binds us to that we are bound to. Now, remember binding? Binding means thou shalt do something or thou cannot do something. That's what binding is. And so it's not that the Mosaic Covenant is intact unless it's specifically abrogated by the New Covenant. I would say that it's terminated and fulfilled in Christ, and the New Covenant now defines for us what's binding. Is that a good way of saying it? In fact, uh, Christy handed out a sheet that Robinan actually found online. It was a great article. It's the sheet with all of the laws on it. Does everyone see that? It's your, one of your two sheets. Take a look at that for just a minute. Let me give you a minute to look at it. Notice all of the laws relating to... In fact, I should get a copy. Um, if you've got one, Bob. Oh, I'm sorry. I should add a copy in my hand. Thank you. Notice here, uh, for instance, duties toward God. Trusting in Him. Mark 11.22, John 14.1. There's many other passages. But were we not to trust God during the Mosaic Covenant? Well, certainly the Israelites were required to trust God. Uh, think about down at the bottom, duties toward other human beings. Do not lie or bear false witness. We certainly see that in the Ten Commandments, but we also see it taught where? In the New Covenant. Uh, do not steal, Ephesians 4.28. So stealing is wrong in the Mosaic Covenant. It's wrong in the New Covenant. So you see continuity, but there's also discontinuity. And what I'm going to show you is it's not sufficient just to say, well, the Ten Commandments are what go from the old to the new. Why? Because Sabbath has changed. Yeah, the fourth commandment. So anyway, so that's what we're going to have to look at. And so here's the point. When we want to use the Old Testament as scripture, we have to interpret it correctly. And that means we have to understand the continuity, what continues into the new versus discontinuity, what does not continue. And that requires that we become careful interpreters of scripture. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Another thing that we're going to be looking at today is two systems in contrast, the flesh versus the spirit. Very succinctly, the Holy Spirit is the system that we're in. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies us by bringing us to faith, and when we believe, we obey. The system of the flesh has it reversed. You obey to be pleasing to God. And what we're going to find out is that none of us can do that. What the Spirit does is it brings us to faith, and keeps us in the faith so that we do obey. Okay, it's a, and it's a big difference. So we'll come to that now. The big thing that I want to leave you with today is sanctification is in the Spirit. Let me read to you Romans 8, 9. Jot that passage down. Listen to what Paul says. 
the Spirit and being in the Spirit is the demarcation line for believers. It says this, Romans 8, 9, Paul says, However you are not in the flesh, the one system, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So being in the Spirit is absolutely essential for believers, and that's how we're sanctified, and we'll lay that out. So let's begin, though. I want to remind you of this diagram that I showed you last time. What role does the law play in the believer's life? Think about this sphere as representing the Mosaic law in its entirety. And what we had concluded that was this, that the Mosaic law is a binding and regulatory covenant has ceased. And what that means then is that the laws and decrees that are found in it cannot bring the regenerate or the unregenerate to do that which is pleasing to God. That's what we learned in Romans chapter 7. The third use of the law is not in not correct at all. But I warned you, we don't want to start pulling pages out of our Old Testament. Why? Because it functions as Scripture. And so as Scripture, it's revelatory, it reveals who God is, and it's also instructional in that it teaches us, if we rightly interpret Scripture, what we ought to do, namely go to Christ. How do we know that? Well, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 27, he comforts his disciples, he kind of rebukes them too, he says, from the law and the prophets, the entirety of Scripture was about him. So the whole Old Testament, if understood correctly, what does it do? It brings you to Christ. Okay, so it, it is revelatory and it is instructional as, in that sense. Okay? The other thing I'd point out is another passage, Romans fifteen four. Paul said, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that, here's a purpose statement, through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So here's what we have to do. If we're going to use the Old Testament law as scripture, we have to interpret it correctly. And if we're going to interpret it correctly, we have to know what continues to be binding from the, new, the Old Covenant and what no longer continues to be binding from the Old Covenant. So we have to talk about continuity versus discontinuity. Does that make sense to everyone? We have to know that. Otherwise, we're going to misinterpret it and we're going to end up falsely binding ourselves to things that are under the old covenant alone. So what I want to do is on this slide is think about this in the diagram. The Mosaic covenant was fulfilled in Christ and terminated. And now we're under the new covenant, meaning look at your sheet. These are all commands that you see from your New Testament. That's what's binding. Jesus is the lawgiver and the mediator of the new covenant and what his apostles and prophets teach, that's what's binding. So unless it's stated in the new covenant, you're not bound to it. Um, for instance, let me give you another example. Exodus 22. Exodus 22, I believe it's verse 15. Don't quote me verbatim there. But it's Exodus 22. You'll see that if you lived in Israel, you were not allowed under the old covenant to charge interest to people if you gave them a loan. Now, let's say you had a person come to you and they, you run a, a mortgage business. And they say to you, you have to leave your mortgage business. You're sinning against God. And you say, what in the world are you talking about? They say, well, you can't charge interest. Look at what Exodus 22 says. What are you going to do? Are you going to leave your mortgage business? Or are you going to say, no, that's the old covenant. Where in the new covenant do we see that we can't charge interest? We don't see that. It's not, it's not taught. 
Therefore, we're not bound. Is everybody with me? That's why this is so important. We can end up being false lawgivers if we go back to things that are not continued in the new covenant. So in the new covenant, then, we have continuity, things that are still wrong today, or things that are still wrong today that were wrong during the old covenant, like murder, like idolatry, all of those things you'll see in your list. Let's just read through a few of them. Duties toward God. Let's just read through the first 11. We're to trust him, we're to love him, and seek to know him better. And you can see all the passages there. We're to be thankful to him, worship and praise him. We're to serve him, we're to pray to him, we're to live in accordance with his will. We're to walk in the spirit. That's very important. Bob's going to be talking about that today in Colossians uh, 2.6. We're to hold fast to sound doctrine and contend for the faith. We're to witness for Christ. We're to do everything as unto him that is for his glory. Number 11, we're to be diligent in devotion and study his word. All right, now, notice the negative duties. We're not to have idols. That was prohibited in the old covenant, wasn't it? We're not to receive false teachers. There were tests for false prophets in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. We're not to mock or speak against God. We're not to blaspheme his name. That was prohibited also during the Old Covenant. So my point is you can see a lot of continuity, but there's also discontinuity. And discontinuity has to do with things that were relegated to the Mosaic Covenant alone. And we no longer do those. As an example, the interest that you can't charge according to Exodus 22. How about cities of refuge? In Israel, you had to have cities of refuge. Do we have to have that as Americans? No. That's under the Old Covenant. Where do we see that we have to have cities of refuge in the New Covenant? We don't see that, do we? All right? So what I want to do is to illustrate this, I want to focus on the big three, I call them. Now, these aren't the only commands that have changed from the Mosaic to the New, but if we were to give you every single one, we'd be here for hours and hours. So I want to give you the big three, Sabbath, circumcision, and the food laws. These are the big three in the Mosaic Covenant that separated Jew from Gentile. All right? So what we want to do is see how they've been changed and or abrogated in the New Covenant. And that'll help us understand, look, we're not under the Old Covenant in a binding or regulatory way. So first of all, notice with Sabbath rest. Remember, in the Old Covenant, you were commanded not to work on Saturday. If you worked and did labor on Saturday, you were a Sabbath breaker. Now, today, if you're out working a job on Saturday, are you sinning? No. Where is Sabbath rest found? It's found in Christ. So when you trusted in Jesus Christ, once and for all, you've entered in to his Sabbath rest. Okay? That's the substance to which the shadow was pointing to, according to Colossians 2.16. Let's look at circumcision. Circumcision, if you were a baby, a male baby eight days old under the old covenant, you were circumcised. Why? Because not only did you belong to a people who belonged to Yahweh, you were part of the theocracy. And you were cut. Why? Because one day God was showing that Messiah comes through the procreation of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. But in the new covenant, we know from Colossians 2.11 that Christ has been cut off for us. So in other words, the seed that was to come through the procreation from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, all of a sudden in the new covenant, he's here. 
So Christ has been cut off from the land of the living on our behalf. Therefore, circumcision is in him. If you belong to him who was cut off for you from the land of the living, you don't have to go to circumcision anymore. It's fulfilled in Christ. So radically different. Now, let me give you one more. We have the food laws, the old covenant. You're not going to eat too much shellfish. You're going to have a lot of different meats that you can eat, a lot of different foods, dairy, etc. I tell you, it's a drag going to a McDonald's in Israel. I've been there. You can't have this and you can't have that. You're just, I'm under the new covenant. (laughs) They don't care. (laughs) They're under the old covenant, right? It's all different. It's all different. Jesus said in Matthew 7, all foods are clean. I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said all foods are clean. That's what Mark said. Okay, so what I want to do now is I want to focus on Sabbath. We're going to just focus on that one. Now, here's why I want to focus on Sabbath. There are Christians today who say that we are still bound to Sabbath, but Sabbath has just changed from Saturday to Sunday. Okay, but what I want to show you is that Sabbath rest is indeed found in Christ. So I want to begin by reading you something that I have from the Westminster Confession. Westminster Confession, very reformed. They believe that the entire Ten Commandments have gone from the Mosaic Covenant to the New. And therefore, Sabbath rest is to be kept. It's just on Sunday rather than Saturday. Okay? Let me read it to you from Westminster. They say this, um, quote, I'll start in the middle of my quote here just for time. It says, He, this is God, has particularly, particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. Let's stop there. Notice they're rightly saying, look, Sabbath was always on Saturday. But now here's where we would depart from them. They say, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, unquote. Now, we are not denying here that the early Christians did meet on the Lord's Day, as it were, on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection in honor of Him. But remember, that's describing what the early church did. Nowhere are we commanded that we must maintain a Sabbath on Sunday. So we have to remember there's a difference between the descriptive nature of those passages and what's prescribed for us. Now, as you're thinking about that, Bob and I will often mention Acts 2.42, where the early church, it's described that they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and fellowship. And you might think to yourself, aha, that's describing what the early church did. Where is it prescribed for us? It is elsewhere. We are commanded to preach the word in season and out of season. We're commanded to take and eat and do this in remembrance of Christ regarding the Lord's Supper. We're commanded to pray without ceasing. And we're commanded, Hebrews 10, 25, not to forsake the assembling together. So those things are commanded. Where are we commanded to maintain a Sunday Sabbath? We're not. Okay, so let's lay out then what Sabbath rest truly is. Sabbath rest is found in Christ. For those who trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you have entered Sabbath rest. And so there is a discontinuity, therefore, between the fourth commandment under the Mosaic Covenant and under the new. 
So let me turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, For indeed, we have had good news. There's the gospel preached to us just as they also. Let's stop there. Who is the they also? Well, he's referring to those who fell in the wilderness. Okay, they also had the word of God preached to them. He says, But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we, now he's talking about believers, we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he said, now here's a quotation from Psalm 95:11, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So God had finished from his creative acts. We see this in Genesis 2 too. Yet those who didn't believe in him didn't enter into that rest because of unbelief. That's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. So the writer of Hebrews is saying Sabbath is far deeper than just a day. Ultimate Sabbath rest is found in trusting in Yahweh, in Christ. Now turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. I couldn't fit it all on the screen here. Verses 4 through 10. Hebrews 4, verses 4 through 10. He continues. He says, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, this is Genesis 2 2, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter it because of disobedience. That's the wandering generation in the wilderness. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David. Now, David spoke 400 years after the wanderings, right? Saying through David after so long a time, just as had been said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as what as they did in the wilderness because those who harden their hearts they didn't believe they didn't enter into sabbath rest now listen to the logic this is very important in verse 8 for if joshua had given them rest he would not have spoken of another day after that let's stop there joshua brings the people into the land the land of rest as it were the promised land But notice that didn't complete the rest for the people of God, did it? And so what's the conclusion then in verse 9? Now remember, okay, let's stop for a moment. When did Joshua roughly bring the people into the promised land? Around 1400 B.C., after the 40 years of wandering. When does David write? About 400 years later, doesn't he? Notice in verse 9, the writer of Hebrews is now going to cite that there still remains a Sabbath rest. That's what David was speaking about 400 years later. So he concludes in verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It wasn't exhausted by going into Canaan. And so you see that Sabbath rest remains for us today. And how do you enter it? He says in verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you have ceased from your works for salvation, just as God rested from his works from the creation. It's not on a day, it's found in Christ. Look at what's in red, verse 3. 
For we who have believed, believed in whom? Implied Jesus Christ. We enter that rest. That's where our Sabbath rest is found. Now, let me give you a passage. This is one Bob and I often cite in our radio program. He'll be teaching this pretty, uh, probably in a few weeks, I would imagine. Um, the next time you're up to bat, I think. Uh, Colossians 2, 16 through 17. I like the net Bible here. Paul says this, and remember, what's Bob been teaching us? About the sufficiency of Christ. What's the problem with the Colossians? Yes, they began with Christ, but they started to go into other things. He wants to bring them back to Christ alone. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in the matter of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. These are only the shadow of the things to come, but the reality is Christ. And by the way, we see this also in Romans 14.5, the same idea. Paul says in Romans 14.5 regarding Christian liberty, he says, one man elevates one day above another. Another man regards every day alike. Each must be convinced in his own mind. So we have liberty. We must assemble at some point. We can't forsake the assembling. But as to what day and how often, that's left to us. There's freedom. Where is Sabbath rest found? It's found in the reality, which is Christ. But notice what I want you to see here is there's a command. This is a commandment from God. This is a new covenant command. You're bound to this. Why? Because Christ is the lawgiver. You're bound to this. Notice this is an imperative. He says, do not let anyone judge you with respect to these things, food or drink or a matter of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. Now, let's stop there for a moment. What does Westminster Confession teach? They are binding you and they are judging you, saying if you don't keep Sabbath on Sunday, you're sinning. That's what Bob and I have been saying, to say you're either going to go with Westminster or you're going to go with Christ in the Scriptures. You can't have it both here. This is a commandment. And for those who like imperatives and those who like commandments, which we all should when they come up in the text of Scripture, here's one from Christ himself as apostle. We can't let anyone say, if you don't hold a Sabbath on Sunday, you're sinning. No, no, no. Because if we allow that, we're giving tacit approval that Christ isn't sufficient, that Sabbath rest isn't found in him. We're teaching that through our lives, aren't we? That's what we're doing. And so we are commanded to let no one judge us regarding the Sabbath because it was always a shadow in the old, but the substance is found in Christ. All right? Now, let me give you three things to consider. i got to spool down here. Can you ever find my cursor? You have that trouble, Bob? <laughs> I hate it when that happens. I hate that when that happens, yeah. Three things to think about. Let me ask the question. Is Sabbath rest, let's just all be on the same page, is Sabbath rest found by observing no work on Sunday? Nope. How about Saturday? How about on any day? No, it's found where? Trusting in Christ. That's where your Sabbath rest is. Okay? Number two, it is too simple then to claim that, as the Reformers are doing, or some Reformed are, that the Ten Commandments are what go from the Mosaic Covenant to the New Covenant. Why? Because the Fourth Commandment we see is radically different. Keeping Sabbath isn't on Saturday, it's found in Christ. Okay? Number three, the whole Mosaic Covenant then has been terminated what we have to glean from this is what the new covenant states. And this is a good representative example. It's what the new covenant states that is binding upon us. 
It's not that the Old Covenant is binding unless the New Testament changes it. The New Covenant defines for us what's binding, meaning what we're commanded to do and what we must not do. That's what we mean by binding. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. Now, what I want to move on to is I want to talk about two systems in contrast. I want to talk about the system of the Spirit versus that of the flesh. If we go back to the law, we're going to be under the flesh in that system. Let's say we go back to something God has never commanded, or we're not even going back to it. We're going to it for the first time. Then you and I are also going to the flesh. Okay? At the end of the day, being in the flesh means you're an idolater because you're asking God to accept something that he won't. Why would you ask God? For instance, let's say you believe that you can be saved if you kept the whole Mosaic law. Well, number one, you're calling God a liar because he says you can't keep it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're also saying, Lord, you're so holy and righteous, but you're going to accept my filthy, my deeds, as, even though they're like filthy rags, you're going to accept them as salvation. You have a different God, don't you? Now, let's say you come up with some system like the Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims. Uh, you can come up with all sorts of different religions, Shintoism, Confucianism. You have some false religion that God has never ordained, and you go to that. Is God going to accept that? No. So the system of the flesh is extremely wide, and that's why people have a hard time understanding what it is, because it's so vast. It's easier to define what it's not rather than what it is. Now, turn your Bibles to Galatians 3, verses 2 through 3. We heard this taught not long ago. Let's review it. Here, Paul is going to show a contrast between the system of the Spirit and the system of the flesh. The reason I'm calling it a system is I want you to think of being in a sphere. You're either lined with the flesh or you're lined with the Holy Spirit and what he has ordained. Galatians 3, verses 2 through 3 Paul begins with this question. It's rhetorical. There's an implied answer. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, which was it? Well, of course, it was by faith, wasn't it? So the Holy Spirit enabled them to believe. Then when they believed, they were given the Spirit. Verse 3, he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what he's chastising them for is that, yes, they began with Christ, but now in their lives to be pleasing to God, they want to move on to a different system. They want to leave Christ alone. In fact, listen to what Timothy George says. I think it's a really good quote. He's a commentator in the book of Galatians. He says this. He says, quote, There is no evidence that these law-observant teachers, he's talking about the false teachers, denied either the fundamental fact of Christ crucified or the manifestation of the Spirit among the Galatians. Their claim was rather that the entry-level gospel proclaimed by Paul was insufficient for the higher spiritual realities offered only through the works of the law. Let's stop there. What he's saying is, yes, they believe that. Yes, Jesus was crucified for us. They believe that. But they left it for what? Well, because if we're really going to be pleasing to God, there's things we better start doing. We're going to go back to circumcision. But wait a minute. Wasn't Christ cut off for us? No, don't go back to circumcision. In fact, Paul says if you want to keep circumcision, you have to keep the whole law. It's a system. Can you keep the whole law? No. So it's Christ alone. You don't leave 
Christ alone. He says these false teachers would have abhorred Paul's antithesis between the gift of the Spirit and the works of the law. There are those today who also don't abhor the antithesis. What is the antithesis? Paul is saying you either have the Mosaic law or you have Christ. It's not both. You're severed from one or the other. That's the antithesis that George is saying to us is being taught by Paul, and he's right. So the false teachers didn't like the antithesis. And I want you to think about today, we're having division in our church because there are those who don't like that antithesis, that we can't have the Mosaic law in Christ simultaneously. We can't. It's Christ alone. Okay, now I want to turn to a passage we'd already begun looking at last week, Romans 8, verses 3 through 4. Do you know the gospel is given to us? The great transaction in the gospel is about Christ's atonement. Our sins are removed. We get rid of something we can't have. That's our sin. But we also get something we need, namely his righteousness. That's described here in Romans 8, 3 through 4. Let's read. Paul says, For what the law, and he's talking about the Mosaic law, could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Okay, now let's stop there. The Mosaic law wasn't unholy. It wasn't inherently defective. But it's being hamstrung by what? The flesh. And remember last week we saw that the law and the flesh are like a combination pack that the Mosaic law can't bring the regenerate, nor can it bring the unregenerate to do that which is pleasing to God because it will be hamstrung by the flesh. And so now we have a system that's going to replace the old system. It's the system of the new covenant or the spirit. Now, he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, here comes the new covenant. And how does it begin? It begins with the sending of the Son. It says, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let me point to the board this very interesting passage here. First of all, notice the atonement that Christ gives us. His own son comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's our representative. And what is he? He's an offering for sin. He's a substitution, isn't he? There's our substitutionary atonement. In fact, the result of his substitutionary atonement, that he was an offering for sin, is that he condemns sin in the flesh. Sin no longer has a bite on us. Why? Because it's been condemned in Christ. Christ has killed it in his atonement. So your breaking of the law is never held against you anymore. Sin has no bite against you. It has no authority. It's been completely demolished in Christ. But notice also we have the positive aspect of Christ's righteousness. Notice he says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Let's stop there. This is important. Some will claim that the requirement of the law being fulfilled in us means that you and I are finally able to do the law. That now we're able to do that which God requires. Not true. This is about what Christ did for us. He fulfilled the law on us. How do we know that? Well, look at the context. What the law couldn't do, God did. God did it. That's the context. And so this is a legal forensic justification. Not only does Christ become sin for us, he condemns sin in the flesh, 
but he also fulfills the law on our behalf. The reason that's important is notice he says about us believers who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you don't understand that it's not us who are obeying the law, but Christ did it for us. If you don't get that right, you're going to distort the rest of it. Because many commentators falsely say when it talks about who do not walk according to the flesh, they say that's instrumental. There's a participle there, and they'll say that's an instrumental participle. What do they mean by that? Well, they say we are those who now are able to obey the law. And that's how the law is fulfilled. And so the way that we fulfill the law is by walking according to the flesh. I'm sorry, not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But it's not instrumental, brothers and sisters. It's descriptive. This is a huge difference. It's descriptive. In other words, if Christ has fulfilled the law for us, and he did because God did it by sending his son, after all, he was our atonement for sin, and now he's our righteousness too. That's the gospel. And so therefore, when he says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, that's not how we fulfill the law. That's descriptive of those who belong to Christ because Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. So what do we do? Well, we're those who don't walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That describes the condition that believers are in. Now, what we see then are two contrasting spheres. There is the sphere of the flesh and the sphere of the Spirit. Let me put up my spheres here. You have the flesh and you have the Spirit. And if you're a believer, you belong to the second sphere. Now, let me read to you Douglas Moo. I'm a big fan of his. Bob likes him too. He just says things very well. Listen to what he says about the flesh versus the spirit. He says, quote, to walk according to the flesh. By the way, let me stop there. Walking peripateo in Greek has to do with living it out. That's, I think, the best way of putting it. It's not how you just begin, but it's how you live it out. And do you live out your Christian walk? Do you live out your Christian life in the system of the flesh or the system of the spirit? So he says to walk according to the flesh then is to have one's life determined and directed by the values of this world, of the world in rebellion against God. Okay, think about that. Now, what is life like in the world in rebellion against God? It's a system of works. You can do something, they say, that will make you pleasing to God, and it's a God of their own imagination. They're idolaters. Because the true God will not accept anything that we do unless we're found in Christ. Apart from Christ... There's nothing we can do. Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot. It's impossible. Uh, Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Okay, so the system of the spirit then is one that brings us to faith. Okay, so I want you to think about this in your individual life. You're going through the day and what the spirit does is it reminds you of the promises of God. It brings you to scripture in this system so that because you believe the promises of God, you obey. But if you depart from that system and you say, you know what, I'm going to obey commands in order to be pleasing to God, and I have the ability to do that, to obey apart from faith, you're departing for the system of the flesh. So we're not denigrating obedience. It's how does obedience come about? Is it apart from faith or is it because of faith? Well, it's, of course, because of faith. That's the idea. Last part of the quote from Mu, he says, to walk according to the Spirit, on the other hand, is to live under the control 
and according to the values of the new messianic age, created and dominated by God's spirit as his eschatological gift. Okay? Now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to just give you a, a, I want you to hold on to this idea of flesh versus the spirit, because the last slide I want to get into, I'm going to show you the way we depart in this church, because we've run into the same problem at TCF, the way we leave the spirit and go back to the flesh is by not tolerating Bible preaching. Okay, let me just give you a foreshadowing. How do we come in contact with the Spirit? Jesus, as you'll see in John 17, says it's through the Word. Sanctify them, he commands. He gives a prayer to the Father. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. So if the Word of God is the means by which you hear the Spirit... And you say, I won't tolerate the scriptures being rightly interpreted because that's too boring. Or I've got some balance. I want to have some commands thrown my way, irregardless of the script, whether the scriptures call for them. What are you doing? You're departing from the spirit and you're going back to the flesh. You're saying that the scriptures rightly interpreted aren't sufficient. I need something more. And you're going right back to the flesh. We saw it at TCF and we're seeing it again today. Okay, so that's where we're going. And that's why I want you to see these two spheres. So hold on to this. Now, I want you to see a real scriptural example where individuals really did this. They really had their own self-made righteousness by their own works. Israel is a perfect example. In fact, Paul uses them as an example in Romans chapter 10. Let me show you where. Romans 10, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So they had a zeal for God, but it wasn't anything that he had revealed to them. It wasn't according to the scriptures. It was a zeal apart from what God had revealed. Therefore, did it do them any good? As you'll find out, no. For not knowing, he says, about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. What law? The Mosaic law. For the righteousness, for righteousness, I'm sorry, to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Now, here's the question. There's a lot in this passage, but I want to focus our attention to what I have highlighted read. When it says that they were seeking to establish their own because they didn't have the knowledge of God, there's two ways we can understand that. Either corporately, that is, Israel corporately believed we're Israel, therefore we're in. Or we can understand this individually as people who claim to do that which is right and pleasing to God by their own works. And I think it's the latter. Why? Because notice in verse 5, Paul says, the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. That comes from Leviticus 18.5. And what Paul is saying, and he's, he's an authoritative interpreter, he's an apostle, is he is saying that God gave this command in Leviticus 18.5, and if someone could really do all of the law, they could live. They could have eternal life. Now, what's the problem with it? No one can do that. And so do you see then he's taking the legs out from anyone who thinks that they can go back to works in order to be saved. 
You have to remain within the system of the Spirit, which brings you to faith so that you're able to obey. Faith is always primary. That's what we have to remember. On the individual daily life, your goal to be sanctified is to believe. And because you believe, you obey. You don't obey to earn. You obey because you belong. Does that make sense? If you doubt that you belong, you'll start to work so that you do belong. You've departed from the spirit and you've gone back to the flesh. So I want you to see that, that that's a real life scenario that Paul gives us. People really do think that they can work for it. The Israel, the the majority of the Israelites live that way. So what's the antidote to this? This is what I want to leave you with. What is the antidote to a self-made righteousness? It's life in the spirit. Now, this is where it gets really juicy. Notice I kind of do a bait and switch with you. I say, what's the purpose of the law for the new covenant believer? And I say, oh, by the way, it's really the spirit, isn't it? It's the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's so significant about this. The scriptures themselves taught us in the Old Testament that the new covenant, God would pour his Holy Spirit upon his people and the third person of the Trinity, God himself, would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Ezekiel 36, 27, this is the new covenant. God says, I will pour my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So how are we going to obey? It's by the Spirit. So let's think about Jesus' life. Remember in Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, he's going to be baptized. Let me read you this passage because Jesus is the one who was anointed by the Spirit, and he is the one who's going to place us in the sphere of the Spirit. So I'm going to tell you a story. Okay, let's begin in Matthew 3.11. Matthew 3.11, this is John the Baptist. He's about to baptize Jesus just two verses later. In verse 13, but listen what he says. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. That is the Jews. He says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, now notice this phrase, he who is coming after me. It literally is the one who comes. John the Baptist says, the one who comes after me, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. That's a phrase from Psalm 118.26, the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. It's a messianic reference. So you could literally say, you could read it this way, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the Messiah who's coming after me is mightier than I. He's the one who comes in the name of Yahweh, Psalm 118.26. Remember Jesus leaves the temple. He says, you will not see me again until you see or until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Okay. Now, Jesus is going to be baptized just two verses later. Let's ask the question, why is Jesus baptized? Well, when you read, for instance, in Exodus chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, you see that a priest like Aaron and his sons, they had to be cleansed in water and consecrated in water prior to them being anointed by God. And so Jesus, our great high priest, is in the water, he's cleansed, and then what happens is the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Why? Because he's the anointed one. So the cleansing comes prior to the anointing. It's, it's a ritual. It's a rite. Okay, now, the other reason why Jesus is baptized is because he identifies with the people of God. Not because he needs to be cleansed from sin, but he wants to identify with us. Think about it. Israel, were they not baptized? Paul says they were in 1 Corinthians 10. Bob has talked about that numerous times. 
So Israel was baptized, and when they went through the Red Sea, where did they go? They went into the wilderness for 40 years. Right after the Spirit descends upon Jesus at the end of Matthew 3, remember, he's been baptized. Where does he go in Matthew 4? He goes into the wilderness. For how long? For 40 days. Does he fail? No, he succeeds. He's obedient, isn't he? He represents us. When Jesus Christ is baptized, he's with his people. And so when you and I are baptized into him, we're identified with him and the people of God. And we're also on a new exodus. We're in the wilderness, as it were, heading towards the promised land. And the image is there's no going back to Egypt. Okay, that's all tied in to baptism. Now, so he's consecrated as a priest. And notice that the claim that John the Baptist gives, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I like the translation, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to place at some point his people in the sphere of the Spirit. Now remember, we're contrasting two systems, the flesh versus the Spirit. So Jesus is going to place us in the Spirit. In fact, we see that he does do that according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. So Jesus then is like the bridegroom, the ultimate bridegroom that any bride could ever have. So he pays for us with this bride price, which is his own blood. And then he goes into the heavens and he sends gifts. Any good bridegroom back in Israel would send gifts. He sends the gift par excellence, which is the Spirit of God. And then the Holy Spirit dispenses gifts upon us so that what we serve one another, that's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about. And so notice what Paul says. Net Bible, very good here again. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Notice here we have a passive voice verb. We were all baptized into one body. The imp- there's an implied agent. Who did the baptizing? Who did the baptizing? Jesus did. Just as John the Baptist had promised up in Matthew 3.11. So Jesus then placed us in one spirit and therefore we're in one body there's unity and this spirit then is the one who's going to sanctify us he's the third person of the trinity he's the one who's responsible for us becoming more like christ and how does he do it he does it through the word of god and so jesus says in john 14 26 but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Notice, the Holy Spirit is the teacher of the apostles, and the apostles are our teachers. Now, we had begun this whole exercise by talking about what are we bound to? Are we bound to the Mosaic Covenant or the New Covenant? The New Covenant. Who are its authoritative spokespeople? Jesus and his apostles. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives them Scripture. Okay? So now we see that the Holy Spirit is going to be the teacher. And in fact, we see that the Spirit's work is also through the Word. Notice what Jesus says in John 17, 17 through 19. He says, sanctify them. This is a cry to the Father. Jesus acting like a priest on our behalf, praying for us. Sanctify, he says, them in the truth. Let's stop there. What does sanctify mean? It means hagiatso. It means to be separate, to be holy, to be different from the world. You belong to God. So how are we going to do this? Well, Jesus says, sanctify them in your in the truth, and then he says what? Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves 
also may be sanctified in the truth. So now we find out that it's the word that the spirit gives that's going to sanctify us. Okay, so everybody following the logic? Remember, we don't want to be in the system of the flesh. We want to be in the system of the spirit. Now, if we want to be in the system of the spirit, we better be hearing what? The word of God. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the image of this world, the system of the flesh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your intellectual faculty, so that you're able to approve that which is pleasing to God, that which is holy and acceptable, that which is his will. The term approved there in Romans 12, 2, dakimatso, you're able to weigh and discern that which is pleasing to God. And how does that happen? It's through the word. That's how you're going to think differently of the world, and you're going to be sanctified for Christ. So it's through the Word of God. We see the same thing in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Here's the purpose. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for how many good works? What are we going to be missing? Every good work. All right? Now, all Scripture, he says, is inspired by God. What person of the Trinity in particular? 2 Peter 1, 21 it says, this is Peter, he says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men were moved along by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. So it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the Scriptures. So apart from the Scriptures, you and I cannot be sanctified, and so therefore we must understand the Scriptures. It's through Scripture that you and I are going to come into contact with the Spirit. So let me conclude with this. This is where I want to leave it. How do you remain within the system of the spirit and not depart from the flesh? You stay with the scriptures, which means you have to understand the scriptures. Let me give you number one. We must come into contact with the meaning that was intended by the author. Think about Jesus, truly man, truly God. Scripture, truly man, truly God. There's truly a human author, but it's truly of God. Why? Because the spirit inspired it. So if you don't understand what Paul is saying, the apostle, or if you don't understand what Mark is saying, or Matthew, or whoever the biblical author is, you're not hearing from the Spirit. Okay? You must get the text right. Otherwise, you're not going to hear from the Spirit. In fact, Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.20. He says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. All right? So we have to understand the Scriptures. Now, when Bob was teaching Galatians, he taught it accurately. Verse by verse. So... If anyone said, well, you know what? I didn't really like it because there needed to be more balance. That's not the issue. The only issue is, did he accurately get us into contact with the meaning of the scripture? Yes. Therefore, we came into contact with the spirit. What's the spirit's role? To sanctify us, to make us into the image of Christ, and to keep sanctifying us in, a, in, a, in the progression or become more holy. Okay? So, we can't say, if we understood the scriptures correctly from a teacher, that we need something else. Because if we say that we need something else, what are we doing? We're departing from the spirit, and we're going back to the flesh. Number two, applications can be many, but they must be logically connected to the meaning of the text. Let me give you a story. This is what happened at... Twin City Fellowship. I teach a sermon. By the way, Bob had the same trouble. I can attest to this. Two years earlier, we both ran into the same trouble. So if I tell my story, it's the same story that Bob had. I teach a passage. I teach Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17.10, it says this. The Lord says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Let me just stop there. 
What was the problem in Isaiah 17? You had the Israelites, they began by faith in Yahweh, but they wanted to depart from that. They said, you know what, we've got these Sumerians that are coming to come down and get us. Let's trust in the Assyrians. Let's make an arrangement with them. So they left faith in God alone. So God rebukes them. And he says, no, trust in me alone. You can't work for your salvation. I'll save you. And so he concludes, you have to remember the God of your salvation. That day that I preached that sermon, guess what we were having? The Lord's Supper. What does the Lord's Supper command us to do? Remember. Remember not what we did, but remember what Christ did. Right? I was rebuked by the elders and some parishioners by saying, we didn't know what to do. We wanted something to do. That is an insufficient application. We want something we can do. And I said, bingo, this passage is for you. Because it's precisely the opposite of what God is teaching. God is saying, don't do something. It's the old saying, don't do, that, don't do something, sit there. Remember a lot of people say, don't just sit there, do something. No, God is saying, don't do something, sit there. Believe in him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. They wouldn't tolerate that application. Why? They didn't want to be content with the meaning of Scripture. If you're in contact with Scripture, the meaning of it, you're in contact with the Holy Spirit. When you won't tolerate the clear meaning of Scripture and want to go on to something else, something more balanced, you're departing from the system of the Spirit and you're going on to the system of the flesh. We had the same thing happen here again. We had good Bible teaching where we got into contact with the meaning of the text, and yet it wasn't quote-unquote balanced. We didn't bring enough law. Well, the question is, did those passages call us to bring law? No, it taught us the opposite. So do you see, brothers and sisters, the way that you can stay within the system of the Spirit is to tolerate teaching and preaching that gets you into contact with the meaning of the text. John MacArthur teaches the meaning of the text. If you went to Ryan Havanaugh's church, he's going to teach you what the text means. That's a work of the Spirit. But if you come to us and say, you know what, I didn't feel like I knew what to do. The only question we're going to ask you is, did we rightly handle the text? On any given day, we're handling a text that has a point. And if we bring you to the point of that scripture, you're hearing from the Spirit. But if you won't tolerate that and say that's insufficient, now you're departing and you're going to the system of the flesh. Okay, now, that doesn't mean that we can't get it wrong. We can't get it wrong. But no one ever said that we got the text wrong. They said you didn't give us balance by giving us law. Well, who is responsible for your sanctification? the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. If you're in contact with the meaning of the word of God, you're being sanctified. Now, again, of course, that is, implies that you're regenerate and you believe because there's people who will hear the word of God and who will go off on their own. But the point is, if you believe and you're in contact with the meaning of the scripture, you're in the sphere of the Spirit, and you're being sanctified according to God's will. That's what it means for us, brothers and sisters. So, two systems. The system of the flesh is the system where people say, I won't tolerate the Scriptures 
rightly understood and interpreted. I need something more. The system of the Spirit is where we come into contact with the meaning of the Scripture and valid applications that flow from the text, not our own. And then we're going to be sanctified according to God's will. That's, I think, how we answer the question, how is it that a new covenant believer is sanctified? Brothers and sisters, we've been severed from the Mosaic Covenant and we belong to another. And he was so loving, he placed us in the sphere of the Spirit while he's presently preparing a place for us so that when he comes again, he's going to take us to be with him. But for now, the third person of the Trinity himself brings you to Christ through the Scripture. That's how we're sanctified, not only positionally once and for all, but progressively day by day. All right, now with that, I'm sorry, I went over time, over budget here. Does anybody have any questions? Dan. I feel so sorry for the Israelites today who tried to live by the old covenant and have no way to get rid of their sin. Yes, it's heartbreaking. In fact, that Romans 10, Paul wishes so desperately that they would be saved, doesn't he? His desire is for them, absolutely. It's heartbreaking. Yep, Peter. Um, Eric, so then it's a, it's, it's a misinterpretation if we say we repent and believe and we use the word as a method of law-keeping. Absolutely. When you said, yes. in essence, it's not a how, it's a false assumption that once we have the Holy Spirit, now we're fully capable of meeting the law, which gets confused or is a misinterpretation of... Yeah, what I, what I would say is this. Once we have the Holy Spirit, we don't go back to the system of the flesh, okay? So... If I go back to... Now, think about it. There's, think of legalism and moralism. Legalism is going back to something God had ordained, the Mosaic Covenant, and, trans, and trying to use that to be right with God. Moralism is to go to something that he's never ordained and try to make yourself pleasing to God. Okay? So what we want to do is remain within what the Scriptures teach. Okay? So on any given passage, on any given Sunday... If you're going to a church, let's say somebody's listening to this, if you're at a church, the goal for the biblical preacher is to tell you what the text says. Why? Because then you're getting into contact with the meaning that the Holy Spirit has. Who is responsible for your sanctification? The Spirit. Now, some of those texts will command you to do something. Some of them will, because there are commands on the new covenant. But the point is, all the biblical preacher has to do is be faithful with what the text is. In other words, if, if Bob is faithful with the text, and he was... You can't go to him and say, you know, I don't have any problem with what you taught. It was absolutely accurate. I, I can't say anything against, but it wasn't sufficient. Well, then you're attacking the spirit. You're saying what the spirit has done is insufficient. You're going back to the flesh. We saw it at TCF, and we saw it now here again. My question to the elders at TCF is, well, show me what passage I got wrong. Well, we, we don't want to do that. It's, it's just insufficient. Did you learn what the text? Well, yeah, but it's just not enough. We didn't know what to do. Well, this passage isn't about what you're to do. It's about what Christ did. So what does the text mean? If we get away from what the text means, and this is something I never forget Bob told me. He says, what happens when people go back to the flesh is you lose the text. You will lose what the, they don't care what the text says. Oh, yeah, that was great, but uh, what are we to do? Right? They're not in the spirit. They've gone back to the flesh. Yep. Exactly. Tom. Eric, it seems like there's such a new 
Yeah. Amen. Uh, we have apostles and prophets that are the spokesmen for God. The best thing that we can claim is uh, um, maybe a good idea. <laughs> In other words, if someone says, thus saith the Lord, or I heard from the Lord, or the Lord said to me, I always just filter that in my mind and say, you know what, they had a good idea maybe, or maybe it wasn't. But it wasn't. See, the Lord spoke to us once and for all. That's why in Jude 3, we contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Yep. <laughs> great comeback yes exactly right yeah i'm sorry we were out of time um but i can certainly talk afterwards with anyone god bless you let me just close in prayer i'm sorry heavenly father lord we uh, thank you so much for our time together i pray lord that you would help uh, people understand what it means to remain within the system of your spirit so that we, they would not depart back to the flesh we ask heavenly father that you would bless this congregation keep us on the straight and narrow path until the day you return. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.